Hey everyone, this is Ben Norton, and you are listening to Rules-Based Disorder at Colin. As always, I welcome anyone who's listening to go ahead and join the queue, and I'll respond to any questions, and we can have a chat. Today, I'm going to begin this episode discussing the latest developments in the NATO military alliance. There have been a lot of developments that happened in the past few weeks, and I want to address some of the main issues because, of course, we can't trust mainstream corporate media to do a good job reporting on this. They've been ignoring a lot of the really important stuff that's happened. So I did a previous episode at Colin here on the show about the... I I did that episode during the NATO summit that was held in Madrid, Spain on June 29th and June 30th. But There have been some developments since the summit ended, and there's a lot to say about it. After the summit that was held, NATO published its first strategy in 12 years. And NATO, you know, it always uses these ridiculous marketing words to try to make its plans, its strategy sound more sophisticated and, you know, like a, like futuristic and like some sci-fi concept. So, They refer to their 2022 plan as the 2022 strategic concept, NATO's strategic concept. Now, NATO basically releases one of these every 10 years. The last one was released 12 years ago in 2010. And in the past 12 years, it has very drastically shifted. And I read through the entire strategic concept. It's about 20 pages. I'm working on a report, a print report at multipolarisa.com, and there's going to be a video and a podcast up in the next few days summarizing and analyzing the main points of this NATO strategy. But today I just wanted to talk about some of the main points in it and some of the response of other governments, because really this strategy is further confirmation of the new Cold War on both China and Russia. Now, of course, in the NATO strategic concept plan, they obviously target Russia in particular, claiming that Russia is their main threat, that Russia needs to be militarily defeated in Ukraine, and that Russia supposedly is going to threaten the rest of Europe, blah, blah, blah. They call for continuing to expand NATO inside Europe and at the Madrid summit, Finland and Sweden were officially recognized as new members that are joining NATO. Turkey, which is a member of NATO, had originally threatened to block their membership. But as I talked about in the previous episode, people can get more information about that. What happened is that Turkey, Finland and Sweden negotiated and came to a deal in which Finland and Sweden pledged to give up Kurdish activists to extradite them to Turkey. Turkey accuses them of being terrorists in scare quotes, although Turkey says that about a lot of people and without any evidence. So these are Kurdish activists and they're being extradited, which also really goes to show that when these Western so-called democracies talk about human rights and asylum and all this stuff for, you know, Russian dissidents or Belarusian dissidents or Chinese dissidents, they never are willing to actually be consistent in those policies. And when it's politically convenient for them, they'll absolutely throw 
Turkish and Kurdish dissidents under the bus to appease NATO member Turkey and to allow NATO to continue to expand right up on Russia's borders. So now Finland, which is on Russia's borders, is, is a member of NATO, and Sweden is joining as well, along with Norway, which has been a member. So this is, this is something that they explicitly call for in this plan, continuing to expand NATO. And they also exp- they not only say that Russia is a main threat, but they spend a lot of time in this strategic concept focusing on China and how China is a so-called threat and a strategic competitor. So it, it's a very clear admission of what I and, and some other journalists, independent journalists have been saying for years now, which is that this is a new Cold War. This is the second Cold War. When, when the second Cold War began is negotiable, it's debatable. You can go back to the Hillary Clinton State Department in the first term of the Obama administration, which declared a pivot to Asia, which really means pivot to war in Asia. And they singled out China, especially after the financial crash of 2008, 2007, 2008, 2009. It was the Chinese economy that helped pull the global economy out of that recession. China was not hurt as badly as these Western neoliberal economies, which are completely financialized and based on this house of cards of just illicit activities and and rampant financial speculation and basically gambling at, at the macro level. And not only that, of course, there was another major factor in helping to recover these Western economies, which was drug money. And that was admitted by British banks. There's an article in The Guardian admitting that one of the way that these Western financialized neoliberal economies recovered from the financial crash is huge amounts of drug money going flooding into banks. But anyway, of course, the other most important factor, what I should have said, is that China became this main target after the financial crash. And and then, of course, that went into hyperdrive under Donald Trump. Mike Pompeo, who was a former CIA director turned Secretary of State under Trump, gave a speech at the Richard Nixon Library saying that Richard Nixon's famous 1972 visit to China was a mistake in which Nixon normalized relations with the People's Republic of China. Before then, the U.S. did not officially recognize the People's Republic of China as a legitimate government. And at the United Nations, the seat of China was held by Taiwan, which, you know, is a tiny island that is part of China, but is they, they, it, it was represented, was representing the entire mainland, which is absurd. And of course, at that time, the Taiwanese authorities were the former Kuomintang, Chiang Kai-shek led figures, the right-wing nationalist forces. So, in 1972, Richard Nixon normalizes relations with China, and that is what led to the three communiques, which are these agreements that normalize relations. And by the way, in those three communiques, the U.S. government acknowledges that Taiwan is part of China. But of course, the U.S. has violated that and continues to send weapons and troops and military advisors to Taiwan to support extremist separatist forces. So to try to break up China. So anyway, the point is that Mike Pompeo gave this speech at the Richard Nixon Library, and he said that it was a mistake 
that this Republican predecessor made a, a historic mistake that the imperialist West thought that China would be become a junior partner in their capitalist system, that they would be able to control the Chinese economy, that by opening up with the reforms after 1978 with the rise to power of Deng Xiaoping, that China would become a fully financialized neoliberal economy, that it would end its state control over the commanding heights of the economy and become subordinated to Western capital like Russia was in the 1990s under alcoholic puppet Boris Yeltsin. And anyway, the point is that that didn't happen clearly. China, the Communist Party of China, maintained state control of the commanding heights of the economy, maintaining a policy of economic sovereignty, refusing to allow Western corporations to control their economy, refusing to allow Western governments to, to, to control their country and maintain state control of real estate, of all land in the country, of the major banks, of telecommunications and infrastructure. And so now, again, we can argue when the new Cold War began in China, but that breakup is over. It's There was a breakup over the past few years. Relations were souring. And at this point, no one can deny in any way that there is a second Cold War happening. All we have to do is look at the NATO 2022 strategic concept to see very clearly that the new goal of NATO is to counter both Russia and China. Of course, NATO was formed in 1949, at the beginning of the first Cold War, as a coalition of anti-communist governments, right-wing governments, to counter the Soviet Union, led by Moscow. And throughout the first Cold War, NATO allied with fascists, former Nazis, and former Nazi collaborators in Operation Gladio, and the CIA working with NATO recruited former Nazis in Operation Paperclip, all to wage this kind of existential war on socialism led by the Soviet Union. It succeeded in 1991 in overthrowing the Soviet Union, and NATO was kind of in this existential crisis. And we saw that NATO had made pledges and Western governments had made pledges to Gorbachev, the, the last Soviet premier, and then to Boris Yeltsin, the first president of the Russian Federation. Although, again, he was an alcoholic U.S. puppet. He didn't really govern as an independent sovereign leader. And so what happened is in 1990, with the reunification of Germany, Western governments promised the leadership in Moscow, that after reunifying Germany, NATO would not expand one inch east past Germany. And of course, they lied. NATO expanded not once, not twice, but 14 times east past Germany, adding 14 new members all east of Germany. And now they're also adding Finland. So you can say 15. And, and then, of course, when Boris Yeltsin was in 1991, that NATO once again promised that it was not going to continue to expand eastward. There was this idea of something called the Partnership for Peace, which Boris Yeltsin wanted to be part of, which was a way for NATO to claim that NATO was not aimed at trying to weaken and destroy Russia because Russia was allowed to be part of this Partnership for Peace, but it was not actually part of NATO. 
And of course, we saw what happened in the years since then. So NATO was trying to find a new lease on life, trying to find a new purpose. And in the past decade, we've seen relations with Russia get worse and worse, especially after the U.S. orchestrated coup in Ukraine in 2014. And then in response to that U.S. orchestrated coup, Russia sent forces and annexed Crimea. And then, by the way, there was a democratic referendum and the vast majority of people, over 90 percent in Crimea, voted to become part of the Russian Federation. It is widely acknowledged, even by war criminals like Henry Kissinger, that that was a legitimate referendum that the people of Crimea did want to become part of the Russian Federation. But of course, the Western powers used this to justify imposing sanctions on Russia, which began this economic war back in 2014. And more and more sanctions over the years followed with a series of stunts, you know, like the uh, supposed scripple poisoning and all this nonsense with Alexei Navalny, the Western-backed opposition leader. And then, of course, pushing right up on Russia's borders by expanding NATO, uh, sending constant, constantly sending billions of dollars to, of weapons to Ukraine even before Russia invaded. And then finally, refusing to sign any defense agreements or not, not, not defense agreements. That's, that's definitely the wrong word. Refusing to sign any binding treaties rep- calling for some kind of peace with Russia. Russia in November and December of 2021 asked for a series of binding security guarantees that the U.S., NATO, and Brussels would not cross its security red lines. Of course, they completely blew off Russia, ignoring all of its demands for written security guarantees, continue saying that, that Ukraine would become part of NATO. Zelensky, the Western puppet leader in, in Ukraine, even threatened to have nuclear weapons and he threatened to violently retake Crimea and continue to expand the war on the eastern Donbass region. And then, of course, Russia invaded in February. And then that triggered the whole new wave of the financial war, Western financial war on Russia. But again, we have to go back to the 1990s. And I, mean, I didn't even mention the set, second Chechen war. But the point is that everyone knew that the way that NATO was trying to rebrand itself to continue to survive after the end of the first Cold War was as an anti-Russia alliance, supposedly in the name of democracy and human rights. NATO has nothing to do with democracy and human rights. We can see that clearly because among the founding members in 1949 was the fascist dictatorship of Portugal, which was a fascist dictatorship for three decades. And NATO didn't care. And furthermore, NATO collaborated very openly, led by the U.S. government, collaborated very openly with the fascist dictatorship of Spain, which had been an ally of Nazi Germany, backed by Nazi Germany in the Spanish Civil War. Spain, in fact, was a member of the Anti-Comintern Pact, which means it was technically part of the Axis powers in World War II, although Spain claimed to be neutral not to participate. Everyone knew that it was allied with Nazi Germany. It signed the, the Anti-Comintern Pact with fascist Italy, Nazi Germany, and fascist Imperial Japan. So NATO has a very long history of collaborating with fascists and dictatorships and Nazis. So it has never been about democracy and human rights. And 
like I said, in the 1990s and 2000s, it it became a, an anti-Russia alliance. NATO, of course, destroyed Yugoslavia in the 1990s. And then really in the past few years, NATO has now broadened its scope to countering China. And not only do we see this extremely clearly in the statements made in the NATO strategic concept, again, this is the plan, the blueprint that NATO published this just this past week, and that's the first NATO plan since since 2010. But we can also see comments that have been made by Western leaders. Of course, Joe Biden, who can barely give a speech, he has made extremely hawkish remarks against both Russia and China, repeatedly pledging that if there is military action by China against Western-backed separatist forces in Taiwan, that the U.S. is going to militarily intervene, which means war with China. But there are also interesting comments that I want to highlight from two people. One from Mike Pompeo, former CIA director and former Secretary of State under Donald Trump. And I also want to highlight comments made by Britain's Foreign Secretary Liz Truss. Now, I'll start with with Pompeo. I did an article about this. I wrote an article about this over at multipolarista.com. And I also filmed a video about this you can find at the Multipolarista channel on YouTube or Rumble, Rockfin, or Odyssey. And there's a podcast version. And I, I'm, so I'm not going to relitigate all of that. I'm, not, I'm just going to summarize some of the main points here. Because it really shows that NATO is an instrument of U.S. imperial power that is being used to wage this new Cold War on both China and Russia. And Mike Pompeo gave a speech at the Hudson Institute, which is a neoconservative think tank in Washington that is funded by large corporations, including ExxonMobil and Monsanto. And it is funded by the Pentagon. And it's funded by billionaire oligarchs like the Kochs and the Walton family behind Walmart. And in this speech that he gave, Mike Pompeo boasted very openly that NATO exists to prevent a Eurasian competitor to U.S. dominance. He said it very clearly. He said, we must strengthen NATO to prevent the emergence of a pan-Eurasian colossus, he said, and a Russian-Chinese axis. So NATO is a way of, as people have said for decades, keeping Russia out and Germany down. And of course, the other part of it is the U.S. on top. It's a way of subordinating Europe to the United States, geopolitically, economically, militarily, and keeping Europe's foreign policy subordinated to the United States, preventing Europe from having an independent foreign policy, and specifically preventing Germany from having close relations with Russia, and especially a, an energy partnership with Russia. And we see this so clearly with the war in Ukraine and the U.S.-led campaign to impose these sanctions and this, this energy boycott on Russia, which is going to destroy German industry. We've seen heads of German industry. These are German capitalists. I mean, they're, they're not in any way progressive people, but they have been warning. They've been saying, look, these Western sanctions are going to bankrupt 
the most important companies in Germany, or if not bankrupt them, do very serious damage to them and make them very uncompetitive because they have to pay insanely high rates for for energy. So, of course, the response might be corporate welfare from the German state, which might subsidize these companies to keep them competitive, which means that average Germans are paying their to they're paying these corporations to help them profit. So the West can continue to bleed its citizenry citizenry dry with extremely high energy costs in order to try to destroy Russia and then also China by extension. So this is a very important speech that Mike Pompeo gave. Again, this is the former director of the CIA, former chief of the State Department. And for people who want, to, want more information, they can go check that out. I also want to highlight comments made by Britain's Foreign Secretary Liz Truss. She spoke before the Foreign Affairs Committee of her parliament. She was questioned on June 28th. And I am doing a report about this over at multipolarisa.com. It's going to be up in the next few days. And in this very interesting question session, she said clearly that the group of seven, the G7, is a, quote, economic NATO. So just as I spent the last few minutes here talking about how NATO is a Western imperialist alliance led by the United States to keep Europe subordinate to the U.S. and to unite the U.S. and Europe against Russia and China and Iran. But she also said that the G7 is the economic NATO. So while NATO is a military alliance, there's a lot of economic elements of it, right? Especially in terms of these extremely expensive military contracts. NATO is pressuring countries in Europe to boost their military spending to 2% of GDP. Spain, its neoliberal government, took the opportunity of the Madrid summit to announce that it's doubling its military spending from 1.03% of GDP to 2% of GDP. So, of course, there's a major economic element of NATO, and a lot of that, those contracts of course, go to U.S. weapons corporations. So it's a way of enriching the U.S. military-industrial complex by pressuring or even forcing European countries to have these huge contracts with U.S. arms manufacturers. But Liz Truss, in this hearing, she also said that the G7 is the economic NATO. And she said that that the G7 countries, which are the Western powerful capitalist imperialist countries, the US, Britain, France, Germany, Canada, and then they throw in Japan in there to pretend like it's not like the Western white supremacist club. So they do have Japan, which is a significant economy. It's a very large economy. But so in this hearing, Liz Truss boasted that the G7 is working together to counter both Russia and China. And she constantly emphasized China. She talked about how the G7 has put together this proposal of $600 billion to fund infrastructure projects in the global south to compete with Beijing's Belt and Road Initiative, which is this massive global infrastructure project bringing bringing Chinese investment, largely from Chinese state-owned companies, to build bridges and roads and ports and water treatment facilities and um, electrical grids in countries across the global south. 
and even countries that aren't in the global south. In, in fact, more than 100 countries have signed on to the Belt and Road. So the G7 is trying to challenge China's Belt and Road. Liz Truss made that as clear as day. It's all about containing China. She said that that the G7 countries and NATO recognize that Russia is our top threat right now, but in the long term, we we our other threat is China. And she said we have to be quote very very concerned about China. She constantly fear mongered about China. So this is further confirmation. I've been talking about NATO's strategic concept. Again, NATO is a military alliance. Well, we also have the top diplomat in Britain saying that the G7 is also being repurposed into the economic new Cold War alliance on both China and Russia. So what this shows is that at breakneck speed, the Western so-called democracies, which are increasingly authoritarian and undemocratic by the day, I mean, the U.S. Supreme Court, these unelected theocrats are taking away people's rights by the day. But they claim to be on a crusade for democracy. Liz Truss claimed that British foreign policy is motivated by democracy and human rights, which is laughable. It's as laughable as when the U.S. government claims that. By the way, in the same hearing, Liz Truss refused for four minutes. She was grilled and repeatedly asked to, to say if Saudi Arabia was authoritarian and she refused to and then she was asked to name a single human rights abuse committed by Saudi Arabia and she refused to do so insisting that Saudi Arabia and the other Gulf monarchies these dictatorships are very important partners for the United Kingdom she kept repeating that so it shows how skin deep this western supposed commitment to democracy and human rights is when they're when they're praising the Saudi dictatorship, this hereditary absolute monarchy. So clearly this, this, this idea of supposedly being, you know, uh, a new cold war for democracy and human rights is absurd. In reality, it's for economic hegemony. Mike Pompeo said that that's the exact term he used in his speech at the Hudson Institute. It is a battle for quote, Economic hegemony. He said it. He said economic hegemony and military hegemony. And he said that the U.S. goal is continuing to be the dominant force in the world. That is world domination. I mean, it's not some cartoon. It's not some villain saying, ah, ha, ha, we want to dominate the world. No, it's quite literally the U.S. goal from the, the mouth of the former head of the U.S. State Department and the CIA Mike Pompeo saying the U.S. goal is world domination. NATO's goal is to prevent a Eurasian challenger to U.S. world dominance. And the British Foreign Secretary saying that, yes, NATO's goal is to wage war on Russia in the short term and China in the long term. And the G7's goal is, as an economic NATO, to challenge China and Russia. So I wanted to talk about all of that at the beginning of this episode here today before I start getting to questions, because this June was a very important month in terms of geopolitics. A lot of things happened. There was the G7 meeting where they pledged $600 billion to challenge China's Belt and Road Initiative. There was the NATO summit in Madrid in which they drafted this new strategic concept of the, the second declaring the second cold war on Russia and China. 
There was the ascension of Sweden and Finland to NATO. And another important development, there was the BRICS summit. The leaders of the BRICS countries, that is B-R-I-C-S, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, they had a virtual summit. It was not in person because of China's zero COVID policy. And the BRICS summit was very important. They announced new cooperation agreements and Argentina and Iran have both applied to join the BRICS. So soon it might be the BRICS with two eyes, Brazil, Russia, India, Iran, China, South Africa, Argentina. So while I spent, you know, the intro here talking about the Western imperialist alliance to wage the new Cold War on China and Russia. At the same time, there are countries in the global south that are working together to develop this new economic infrastructure to push for independence and sovereignty and self-determination for their peoples against U.S.-led imperialism. And we saw an example of that with the BRICS summit. And I think we're going to see more as these Western sanctions on Russia and also China force Russia and China and their allies in the BRICS and other countries in the global south to develop an entire new economic system, an entire new financial system to challenge the hegemony of imperialism led by the U.S. through institutions like the International Monetary Fund, the IMF and the World Bank. So it's a very interesting time. June was a very important month in terms of geopolitics. And for people who want to get more information about all of that. I'm working a lot. Uh, every day I'm working on new reports at multipolarista.com talking about all these things that are happening in the world. So with that said, I'm now going to start responding to questions from people. I always, and with all these episodes here at Colin, I, I always try to have an introduction to talk about what's a, what's a very important, timely topic. And I think there's a lot of things happening that don't get coverage in Western media. So I just wanted to, to mention all those details. So I'm going to start now. Andrew has been patiently waiting. So go ahead, Andrew. Hey, Ben. Um, How are you doing? Good. How are you? Good. Right on. Um, well, okay. I got a couple questions. I'll try to keep them concise. Um, I think that... It may be a little off topic, but um, maybe I'll start in reverse order that I thought of them because the last one has to do with Russia. Um, yeah, well, don't worry about being – there's no topic. I mean, it's just an open Q&A, so ask whatever you want. All right, I'll go one to three then. So the the I have sympathy for um, the Kurds. I think that, you know, the kind of partition of the, like, Kurdish ethnic homelands – um, was really central to the Sykes-Picot agreement to destabilize the Middle East in favor of European colonial control and keep the oil flowing into Europe. Um, so I do have sympathy, but I, I also, um, and, and I also even think like, I'm curious your take on like the PKK, YPG, YPJ, because like, I don't know, I'm I'm not an expert, but I know that at least in the Syrian regions, they're claiming to to basically have like direct democracy as the underpinning of everything they're doing. Um, but when I see them interacting really 
uh, closely with the United States to extract oil from Syria, um, it makes me, you know, I don't want to lionize them, but I'm curious, just your general take, and I wonder if you think that, could they be compared to, like, the factions of the IRA that kind of took British intelligence support um, to gain control of a, a larger faction of the IRA and then sign an earlier treaty that excluded Belfast? Like, I guess I kind of look at it like that, which I don't, I, I don't think either of those things are good, that the, that the, the Kurds in Syria are, are working with the U.S. because it seems like they're getting ready to sell them out for, for Turkey. To, to make their kind of Finland, Sweden, NATO accession go forward. Um, I don't want to just treat, you know, say like blanket statement, oh, they're just useful idiots. So I don't really think that, but um, I'm curious your take on that. And then I have a couple other questions about like direct democracy stuff, Russian things. Yeah, so good question. This, this is a complex issue. It's, it's a difficult issue. Um, can, can I just... Uh, can you just mute your mic just because there's background noise? Yeah, um, sorry, there's a thunderstorm. So, yeah, no worries. I I agree with you. I am very sympathetic to the plight of the Kurdish people. I think it's true that historically, especially in the past 100 years, especially um, under Turkish state policy, Kurdish people have suffered. And if you look in the region, not every country has had the same policy. In fact, of all of the countries in the region where Kurds have the most rights, a lot of people would say it's Syria. And I did an interesting interview about this with this Kurdish journalist who lives in Turkey, um, Ali Ornik. And in fact, uh, we've, we've had discussion here at this show. There's, there's this guy, uh, a Syrian-American guy, Sam, who calls in sometimes and has good comments. And we talked about that. And, and I he proposed that I'm going to try to bring back this, this Kurdish journalist, Ali Ornik, to talk about the situation but the point that he often makes, and you can find this with the interviews I did with him, is that in Syria, of all the countries, Kurds had the most rights. In Turkey, of course, they had the least rights. And Turkey has had this very racist, chauvinistic policy, even kind of fascistic policy against the Kurdish people, against Kurdish culture and the Kurdish language. There's no denying that. Of course, Turkey has been a NATO member for Decades and Turkey in the first Cold War was a Western ally against the Soviet Union. Erdogan now tries to play like this kind of independent foreign policy. But as we saw on the NATO summit in Madrid, he ended up agreeing to allow uh, Sweden and Finland to join. And then, of course, in, re- in re- response, Sweden and Finland offered to give up Kurdish activists to Turkey. So it shows how much they actually care about the Kurds. Now, at the same time, I think we need to understand the different political tendencies within the Kurdish movement, because there's a way that people talk about the quote unquote Kurds that I'd really find strange because they talk about the Kurds in a way that if other people talked about like the Jews, it would be weird. So there's this, there's this like homogenization, right? Of Kurds as if they're all just the Kurds. But there are a lot of political groups within the Kurdish peoples. There are different Kurdish cultures. So there are Kurdish communities in Iran. There are Kurdish communities in Iraq and Turkey and Syria. And they actually have three different linguistic groups. And some of the the Kurdish dialects are so different, they're almost like separate languages. They're almost mutually unintelligible. So if you look, for instance, at, at some of the Kurdish political groups in Iraq, 
many of them are some, there are two main factions, right? Like the Barzani faction people know about. And they're, they tend to be the most opportunistic and completely collaborate with Western imperialism, supporting the U.S. invasion of Iraq and the U.S. military occupation of Iraq, the partitioning of Iraq. And of course, the U.S. government create, helped to create a Kurdish autonomous region in Iraq, which shows that that was part of the U.S. invasion of Iraq in the plan to destabilize the region. And those factions in Iraq also collaborate very closely with apartheid Israel. So they're not the same as the, the political factions in Syria. And even the political factions in Syria are not homogenous. So there are Kurds who live in government-held areas in Syria, and they're conveniently erased, right? When people talk about the Kurds, like with a capital T and the, they're specifically talking about like this idea that's been marketed by Western media of Rojava, which is a separatist term. It's not Rojava. It's part of Syria. But there are separatist forces that are backed by the U.S. that are basically being used to balkanize the Syrian state. And they claim these leaders specifically of the Syrian Defense Forces, which is a rebranding that was demanded by the U.S. government. There's a Reuters article that admits that the YPG, the People's Protection Units, and the PYD, the political party that oversees the YPG, the YPG being the armed wing, that there was an article in Reuters that admitted that the Pentagon told the YPG leadership to rebrand because everyone knew that the YPG was linked to the PKK. So they rebranded a few days later as the Syrian Defense Forces, sorry, the um, Syrian Democratic Forces, the SDF. So the, the SDF is quite literally a Pentagon creation. And even though people say the Kurds with a capital T, in fact, the SDF forces include non-Kurdish forces. If you look at who makes up the SDF, there are smaller militias of other ethnic groups. And by the way, speaking of like this idea of like supporting open democracy and and like democratic confederalism um, and all of this stuff, it, there have been a lot of reports of the SDF ethnically cleansing other smaller eth- uh, minority groups, minority eth- ethnic groups in Syria, especially Assyrians. There have been reports of of attacks on Assyrian communities. And a lot of the, the Assyrian communities are, they're loyal to the, the federal government of Syria. So this is a very long, complicated topic, but it goes back to the debates that were happening within the Kurdish militant movements in Turkey and Syria in the 1980s and 90s and early 2000s. And ironically, the Kurdish separatist forces in northeast Syria, which are basically proxies of the U.S. military, collaborating closely with the CIA and the Pentagon, those forces of the SDF claim that they don't want independence. They claim that they only want autonomy and they're not trying to create a state, but they are creating a state within a state. And they're doing so with the protection of of the U.S. empire. And of course, as you mentioned, stealing Syrian oil, which belongs to the entire Syrian people and selling it to U.S. corporations. And furthermore, this is also ironic because where was the leader of the PKK, Abdullah Ocalan, living in the 1990s? He was living in Syria with the protection of the Syrian government. But what happened is that there was this this so-called undeclared war between Syria and Turkey in the 1990s because 
in the 1980s and 90s, because in the 1980s, Turkey, with NATO's support, backed a an attempted war supporting Muslim Brotherhood extremist Islamist elements that, that had a, an armed uprising to try to overthrow the Syrian government in the 1980s based in Homs. And it, they were, they were, that, that attempted armed uprising was crushed by the Syrian state. And that was clearly backed by Turkey and NATO. So after that, Syria and Turkey had extremely negative relations and there was a so-called undeclared war. So in the 1980s and 90s, Abdullah Ocalan was living in Syria and the Syrian state was supporting the PKK in its war, its separatist war against Turkey. So this is a complicated history. But then, of course, what happened is after the overthrow of the Soviet Union, which was one of the main supporters of Syria, Syria lost one of its main allies. Russia went through this period of kind of neocolonization. And Syria was basically forced to, especially after the death of the father of Bashar al-Assad, Hafez al-Assad, was forced to normalize relations with Turkey. And as part of that agreement, they agreed to, to tell Ojalan to leave Syria. So what happened after that is there was a big debate going on in the Kurdish militant movement. And the PKK has always kind of leaned toward a more Maoist political orientation. Although, like I said, it was complicated because even after the Sino-Soviet split, there were factions that were more pro-Soviet. But what happened is a lot of the people that had been, that were Maoists that considered themselves non-revisionists, uh, they, they would say that they're, you know, they don't necessarily call themselves Maoists, they would call themselves Marxist-Leninists, but they would say that they're not revisionists, unlike their so-called revisionist CPs. Anyway, whatever. A lot of those forces ended up allying with U.S. imperialism against the Soviet Union. As we saw, for instance, in the war in Afghanistan in the 1980s, in which there were Maoist groups fighting in alliance with the fascist Mujahideen and the CIA against the Afghan socialist government backed by the Soviet Union. So within the Kurdish militant movement, there was a very strong influence of these Maoist forces that saw allying with Western imperialism against the Soviet Union as the correct Marxist position, which is obviously insane. And it, it amounts to a left-wing defense of imperialism. So we, we have to understand that history to understand today how the YPG and SDF forces are basically trying to make a left justification for collaborating with imperialism. And they're doing so in a way that, like I said, is not democratic. You can't say it's it's like direct democracy or democratic and federalism or all of this, when the only way that it can actually exist is through the protection of a U.S. military occupation, which is a neo-colonial occupation. So, yes, I'm sympathetic to the plight of the Kurdish people, especially in Turkey, but in Syria, the Kurdish people do not face the same discrimination that they face in Turkey. And in fact, the U.S. is very clearly using the SDF and YPG as a political proxy to weaken and potentially balkanize Syria, to strengthen imperialism, and in alliance with Turkey, by the way. I mean, Turkey will criticize the U.S. for supporting these forces, but there's obviously a kind of a double game being played, as we saw with Trump allowing Turkey to gobble up more of Syrian territory. So the U.S. is using these armed Kurdish groups, Kurdish-led groups, they're not even all Kurds. The U.S. is using these groups to try to weaken Syria and helping Turkey gobble up and colonize Syrian territory. And meanwhile, 
the leadership of the SDF has refused to come to any kind of diplomatic agreement with the central government in Damascus. So they have repeatedly sat down for peace talks with the Syrian government, and they have refused to agree to basically the Syrian government's uh, the Syrian government has offered two demands that are not negotiable. One, that the YPG cannot maintain its independent military, military structure. The, for, for Damascus, there are two concerns. That the SDF forces cannot have an independent foreign policy. That is, they cannot normalize relations with apartheid Israel and support Western imperialism as this kind of cat's paw of the U.S. inside Syria. And two, that they have to, that they cannot maintain their military command structure as an independent force, that the SDF and YPG can maintain their structure, but only within the federal Syrian army, the SAA. So the SDF has refused those two demands. They want independent foreign policy and they want to maintain a separate military structure, which means, again, a state within a state. So eventually they can have some kind of separate state and normalize relations with apartheid Israel and sell oil to the U.S. to fund their operations and then basically become a protectorate to, to carve up the region. So we have to understand all of that historical context to understand that, yes, it's true that in 1916, when Sykes-Picot was negotiated, that the European colonialists and also, by the way, Tsarist Russia, which was part of this before the Soviet, before the, the Russian Revolution, the Tsarist, um, Tsarist Russia was a, was involved in Sykes-Picot. And the only reason we know about Sykes-Picot is because of Vladimir Lenin leaked it in his newspaper Iskra after the Bolshevik Revolution. Anyway, it's true that historically in those negotiations of Sykes-Picot in 1916, that, it, that the European colonialists did intentionally prevent the creation of a Kurdish homeland. And that is, of course, a colonial uh, a crime. But we also need to understand today that the same colonialists that divided up the region in Sykes-Picot are now trying to support certain Kurdish factions once again to divide up the region. So it's an example of using, uh, um, exploiting the idea of support for self-determination to actually obviate and take away self-determination for peoples of the region. It's very cynical. And it reminds me of how the U.S. now claims to be supporting, you know, the rights of the Taiwanese people who are supposedly independent from the Chinese people or, you know, the Uyghurs in Xinjiang. It's a very cynical policy that claims that it's supporting a progressive policy of support for an oppressed people. But it actually, in the end, it actually is to further that oppression and carving up the region even further. So uh, you're muted. I know that was a very long answer, but it's a very complicated question. No, you're good. Um, yeah, I know there's just a lot there. Um, I guess just um, I guess I have like one thought, and then I wanted to move to another question, um, which is that I think um, it, you know, like there's kind of this argument or conversation that goes around on left social media that is like you know, any kind of ethno state could be compared to Israel or not. But I guess like if you look at Ireland for a counterexample, 
they seem to be very consistently, I mean, at least the people, I know there's a lot, um, actually Shane, who was in here earlier, he's still in here. Yeah. He's, uh, educated me a lot about like the, the sort of neoliberal shift in Ireland that's been going on just like everywhere else. Um, at, le at least since the early nineties, but like Ireland didn't turn out really anything like Israel. <laughs> and I think that, um, there's obvious reasons for that, which is that the people, the Irish people didn't just like return to Ireland and kick out a bunch of other people that were also living there. If that's kind of even the narrative that could be real. So I guess like, I don't think that the project for some kind of Kurdish homeland would just inevitably have to be like Bakur in Iraq. That's just kind of ruled by a, a you know, a handful of people from one family. That's extreme, like the Barsanis that are just extremely wealthy and authoritarian. Um, but I guess like more on sort of, uh, council democracy or whatever you want to call it, democratic confederalism seems to have just won some very big victories in Ecuador. Um, it's, it is a sort of, um, very widespread phenomenon around different cultures in around the world. And, and I'm curious, like to what extent were the Soviets, like as in the actual Soviets, like workers councils, how much power did they have in the USSR and how, how long did they retain the power? And then my last bit, um, so I'll just, if you don't want to answer both, just pick one. Cause I've, we've, I've been on for a long time, but the other question is, um, in order for Yeltsin to stay in power, not only did they have to like bomb the parliament and attack the, the democratically elected, largely communist parliament to stop communists from, from, kind of blockading the neoliberal shock therapy in Russia, but they also created this infrastructure to rig the 96 elections to stop the communists winning the presidency. And to my understanding, Putin has just continued to use that same infrastructure to remain in power um, over his time. Um, so I guess I'm curious. Um, I can't remember his name. I, I can't remember his name, but he's been on uh, Breakthrough News with Ronnie Kalik. He's been on also, I believe... The analysis.news with Paul Jay. He's a, a Russian communist who has said numerous times that he's, the, he's not a Russian. Yeah, I know you're talking about. He's not a Russian communist. He's a Russian academic Marxist, but he's not a communist. <laughs> okay. He's well, like anyways. a democratic socialist type. Like a, All right. I mean, he, that's what he would call himself. Well, just curious your thoughts uh, on either of those or both or whatever. You know, like workers' councils, direct democracy, writ large, winning gains in Ecuador. How real was that throughout the Soviet Union? How long did that kind of exist? To what extent did the Soviets have power? Um, and then also any thoughts on electioneering in Russia? Yeah. Um, so I'll try to keep answer this quickly. The the idea of like democratic councils and all that, of course, that's nice. Like it's nice to have popular democracy, but it can exist without the protection of the state. And this is clearly the case we see in in northeastern Syria and these areas that are occupied by the U.S. military. How long would those democratic councils last a Turkish invasion? And this is why it's just an infantile ultra left politics that can that has always failed everywhere it's tried to been tried to be implemented because it cannot exist. 10 minutes without the protection of a powerful state. And we see this in like Nestor Makhno in Ukraine, who, by the way, was a fervent anti-Semite, which is never mentioned, along with, uh, you know, the leaders of the uh, anarchist movement in Europe. I mean, some of the most famous anarchists were notorious anti-Semites and attacked 
Karl Marx for being of Jewish, partial Jewish descent. Um, but anyway, um, especially Bakunin I'm referencing was a notorious anti-Semite. But anyway, uh, in the case of Syria, I mean, if the U.S. military wasn't there protecting these democratic councils, they would be crushed by, by Turkey tomorrow. So this is not an academic discussion, like, and this has happened throughout history. Like, people love to romanticize democratic councils. It's also true in the case of, of Mexico and the Zapatistas. Look, respect to the indigenous communities of Mexico, um, that are taking power away from these corrupt cartels in a very weak state in rural areas. But the Zapatistas do not represent all of those indigenous communities. The Zapatistas are a very small political movement. And if you talk to a lot of people on the Mexican left, the Zapatistas are not very well liked. The Zapatistas, by the way, have constantly attacked Venezuela and Nicaragua and other left-wing forces in Latin America. They run like this little personal fiefdom. And a lot of people on the Mexican left see them as like this NGO-ified bastion of like global north ultra-leftist NGO liberalism that actually doesn't, that just doesn't care about the rest of the country and can only exist because it has like this Western NGO backing and because the state is very weak in those areas. So obviously, yes, like I said, I mean, not just people know about the Zapatistas, but there are other parts of Mexico with a very weak central state where people organized autodefensas, like self-defense councils because of the strong presence of organized crime. And that's completely understandable and completely justifiable. And that's a reflection of the weakness of the Mexican state. But it, it, that's not a solution for governing society at a large level. There needs to be a strong state, but that state needs to represent the will of the people. It needs to be a state that is truly democratic in the actual definition of, of people's democracy. So uh, th this idea of like, you know, local democracy and people's councils. Yeah, I mean... Of course, everyone supports that idea, but we have to understand that within a geopolitical context. And that's clearly the case of war communism in the Soviet Union. People who criticize Lenin for centralizing more power, well, he overthrew the Tsarist Empire and then was facing a brutal internal war from fascists, proto-fascists from the White Army, who wanted to carry out genocide, by the way, against Jews and massacre all communists and people on the left. And they had the support of Western imperialists. And after the, so the Bolshevik Revolution, the Soviet Union at the beginning was invaded by over a dozen imperialist powers, including the U.S., by the way, it's the little known history that invaded Soviet Russia. So people complain, well, you know, why didn't the workers' councils? How do you fight a war against internal reactionaries who have a huge part of the army that was behind them, including a bunch of czarist generals. And then how do you fight that war also against the very well-equipped Western imperialists? If you just have everything like democratic councils, you're going to be crushed in 30 minutes. So like, yeah, I mean, I, when I was younger, I'm, I'm not saying this anyway to be condescending to you or anyone else, but like when I was younger, I was really interested in like these like anarchist ideas of democratic councils and all that stuff. But if you actually study history, this stuff can never exist without the protection of a strong military, which means a state. And the discipline in a military is necessary to defeat, especially a military that is more powerful and better armed than you, as we see in the Spanish Civil War. Okay, great, free Catalonia. But it was defeated by fascists. And we saw what happened. Spain was governed by a literal fascist regime from 1939 until 1981. 
that was the great success of the Spanish Revolution, being realistic. So I'm not, this isn't a personal attack on you in any way. I'm just saying that, like, you know, there's all this interest in democratic councils, but there's never actual political analysis of what allows those political councils and democratic councils to operate. And they only can operate within a particular system. So, um, and, and anyway, as for your question about Russian, Russia's political system, yeah, I mean, everyone knows that Putin was Boris Yeltsin's right-hand man. And Yeltsin was so incompetent that after rigging the election for him, the U.S. decided that they had to replace him with someone else. And Putin was seen as a much more clear-headed, competent bureaucrat who could manage the affairs of Russian capitalism. And uh, there is another significant factor, which is not, it's, it's not a minor detail, which is that uh, Boris Yeltsin was a completely malfunctioning alcoholic. I mean, when I, I always joke that he was a U.S. puppet, and, uh, an alcoholic U.S. puppet. But actually, that is a key detail because he was always drunk. And even, for instance, you know, there are these reports of when he was talking with Bill Clinton about the uh, the Alliance for Peace program, a partnership for peace program and all of that. And allegedly, the reports, according to like Kissinger and others, are, the, are that Yeltsin was literally drunk in those meetings, which is why apparently he didn't remember some of the things that were negotiated. And... Putin, not only was he seen as like this competent bureaucrat who was formerly, you know, KGB and knew how to keep things well together and organized, but he was, he doesn't drink alcohol. So everyone knows that Putin was supposed to be the more man, the more competent manager of Russian capitalism to help integrate Russia into the imperialist Western system. And of course, at the beginning, he went along with that. In the first Chechen war, the West supported Russia and Putin, who was at that time working with Yeltsin still, against the Chechen separatist forces. And then in the second Chechen war, that was when the West supported Chechen separatists against Moscow. And after his experience of several years of trying to integrate Russia, in fact, Putin just said before he launched the invasion of Ukraine, he said that that um, he had spoken with Bill Clinton about trying to join NATO and Bill Clinton just completely blew him off. So after these years of governing on behalf of, of Russian capitalism, Putin realized, okay, Russia will never be allowed to integrate into the U.S.-led imperialist system on an equal level. We are always going to be subordinated. They're always going to treat us as inferior, and they're never going to allow us to have truly sovereign policies. And he gave this famous speech at the Munich Security Conference and declares that there is a, a a system of hegemony that prevents us from from having our own independent policy and then you have relations begin to deteriorate between them but throughout that entire period the main opposition to putin in in that period after yeltsin in the first decade of the 2000s the main opposition to putin was the communist party and, you know, as you acknowledge, the Communist Party has been a significant political force in the Russian Federation. And the only way that it was prevented from being in power was through these very anti-democratic means, like literally shelling, taking tanks to shell the parliament. And when Putin was pursuing this more Western friendly policy in the early 2000s, the Communist Party was his main opposition. But what happened as Putin as relations begin souring with the West is that 
he began pushing a more independent foreign policy, and he also realized that he had to impose this kind of discipline on the oligarchic class. So while Russia is certainly a capitalist country, it is very much state capitalist, but not, not in the sense that like Trotsky, I'd say about the Soviet Union. Russia is capitalist, but it has a state-led capitalist model where the most important companies in the economy are state-owned companies, and they're b- largely based on uh, extraction of natural resources, especially hydrocarbons, but also minerals, uh, gold, and timber. So what Putin did is he put like state control over the most important industries. Um, agriculture is still privatized in Russia, but the other significant industries are state-owned. And they're not run for the benefit of the working class at all. Obviously, you know, there's, there's corruption and, and that money doesn't go to fund a very, um, you know, substantial social safety net. There is healthcare and there are, you know, pensions and stuff, but, and, and it's similar to the kind of European social democracy, but it's still run on this capitalist basis. But, but Putin came in and, and before it was this wild west ultra capitalism where everything was completely neoliberalized and financialized and sold off to Western capital for pennies in the dollar, Putin imposed this discipline over the Russian capitalist class on behalf of the interests of the Russian state. And he began pursuing a more nationalist foreign policy that was more antagonistic against the West and NATO. And then what happened is that the, the Communist Party of the Russian Federation began to slightly modify their position toward Putin and they began to support his foreign policy, his nationalist foreign policy, but criticize his economic policy. And that explains where the situation is today. And still today, the main opposition in Russia to the government and to Putin is the Communist Party of the Russian Federation. They did pretty well in the most recent elections. And that's despite the fact that they accused the government of, of you know, in some areas, like stealing votes from the communists. So if you look at the position of the Communist Party of the Russian Federation, they have a website and they have English language statements they translate. They say that very clearly. They're critical of some of Putin's economic policies, which despite a lot of Western critics saying that he's a neoliberal, Putin's not a neoliberal in the sense that we actually understand neoliberal. He is a capitalist who runs it on a kind of state capitalist basis of going back to like the kind of welfare, capitalist welfare states of Europe. And if you look at the Communist Party of Russian Federation, they usually say that they're supportive of a lot of his foreign policy decisions, but critical of his economic policy, saying that it should be more geared toward, you know, the popular sector and working people and etc. So, yeah, I mean, Putin is he's been in power for a long time, but being realistic, even pro-Western groups in Russia you know, like uh, a lot of these like academic groups that do surveys, they regularly acknowledge that he's an extremely popular leader. That doesn't mean that I'm a big fan of Putin, obviously, but you have to understand the conditions within Russia. He is genuinely a very popular leader and he is seen as a very competent manager of Russian capitalism. He has pursued Russia's national interests in a way that has benefited both the Russian capitalist class and the Russian people. And there are certainly left-wing critiques to be made of him but the idea that Russian, that Putin is like some, you know, neoliberal, whatever, that's, that's not true. He, he is governing as a kind of European style welfare capitalist model 
in the interests of Russia's foreign policy. And honestly, if the left were in power in Russia, I think a lot of the policies would be basically the same, except they would have a more um, they would have more funding for a lot of the social programs. So, for instance, Putin recently raised the age of retirement and he's he has cut back, especially when they were being hurt by uh, the Russian economy was being hurt a lot by Western sanctions. Ironically, the new Western sanctions have strengthened the ruble and brought higher revenue from from uh, fossil fuel exports. But I mean, aside from that, like if you look at the the program of the Communist Party of the Russian Federation, like economically, it's pretty different, but a lot of it's pretty similar. So I'm not in any way I'm not saying that Putin is like a secret leftist. He's not a leftist. Like I said, in the context of Russian politics, he's a centrist. But this idea that like Putin is like a right winger and all, I mean, there's like elements of cultural conservatism, not just in Russia, but in many countries, including especially in the global South. But if you look at his actual economic policies, he's running this kind of centrist economic policies with an independent foreign policy. Um, now, unfortunately, I know that there are two other callers here, um, Ian and Derek, but because those are very complicated issues, I mean, I, I can't like, it's hard to talk about like understand Putin's politics in a three minute answer and especially the Curtis issue. So I did go way over my time. So unfortunately I am going to take these, this last question from Ian very briefly, but I do have to run. So I'm sorry for, uh, I'm sorry for ranting so much in the, in the last questions, but I'll take a question from Ian Brown here and then I got to wrap up. How's it going? Hey, what's up? Um, so I'll be kind of brief. Um, you know, a lot of what, uh, what like uh, the state of, uh, I guess, journalism these days, a lot of people like me kind of have to figure out, you know, government policy based on kind of inferences. And so I won't like, I wonder what, like, what do you think we can infer from, I guess, I guess the promotion or platforming of like such kind of hyper ideologue people like, uh, like Mike Pompeo and Liz Truss or, or even, you know, von der Leyen and, and Jens Stoltenberg and stuff like in the future, maybe like, you know, historians might look back and like, these were the obvious of the bad guys. Look how aggressive <laughs> and ideological they're, rhetoric was, but within our bubble, like it, it just seems to go over most people's heads. But so there has to be some kind of calculus that there's not a net like cost to pushing just like completely like zany um, uh, rhetoric and just idiotic and ideological, you know, um, officials. Um Maybe they're thinking back to Reagan and Thatcher, like they thought maybe that was, you know, that was a good, a good move for the, you know, the Western political class or something. But it seems like they don't think it's a net cost and perhaps it's a net benefit. But what does that really tell us about the state of things um, in sort of the Western, you know, political and economic establishment? Is it a sign of desperation, like delusion? Um you know, unfortunately, like we don't really have a, an insight into exactly what people are saying and doing, you know, within our governments. But, um, you know, it's sort of speculation, but it does seem a bit risky and unusual that these kind of voices would be coming forward and receiving support. 
Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, this is not new at all. What your question reminds me of a book that I read about I.F. Stone, who used to be a really important muckraking journalist. He's kind of a role model for me. People know about Hunter S. Thompson, you know, the, the kind of um, interesting gonzo journalism style. And there are other figures, you know, um, Bernstein and others in the history of journalism who are kind of well-known figures. But I actually think one of the most important figures in the, in the history of modern, you know, modern since the past 100 years, U.S. journalism is I.S. Stone, who created this, this methodology that's, that influenced Chomsky. A lot of people have read Chomsky's books. And basically the methodology was to pour through government documents and statements and basically just find the statements and the like little nuggets of information that expose what Western governments are actually doing. I.F. Stone was the master of that. And going back to the Vietnam War, he had this weekly, the I.F. Stone Weekly, where he would read through all these hundreds of pages of government documents and, and and find like all this good information that exposed what was actually the policy toward Vietnam and Southeast Asia and all that stuff. And I really think that that's, that's really what, that's the way, the only way to actually figure out what they're doing. Like this idea now that government officials are less transparent. Uh, I actually don't think it's necessarily true. I mean, obviously the Gulf of Tonkin incident is a classic example of that. And I think that's why, you know, uh, the best journalists do that kind of thing. I spend a lot of time, I'm not saying, I'm not comparing myself in any way to I.F. Stone, like that guy is a juggernaut, um, or Chomsky or anyone. Like, you know, I have criticism of Chomsky, but he's done brilliant work on this kind of like pouring through a lot of those documents and finding what it, what, what it really expresses about what real policy is. Um, that's what I do is a lot of what I do as a journalist is, going through a lot of like documents and speeches and stuff. And especially the kinds of things that, that are not in mainstream media. Like um, I did a report this past week on this summit, uh, not the summit, this um, hearing that was held by the, by this U S congressional group calling for how to decolonize Russia. That is break up Russia. Like those kinds of things that are for internal consumption for Congress and politicians like that's the way to really find out what they're doing is to listen to their internal discussions in Washington. And one of the advantages now is that they all have like YouTube channels and they all publish these videos. They get like 30 views. Like there are so many Atlantic council panels and Brookings institution panels that have like 50 views. And then, you know, there's always like Rand reports, right? The Rand corporation. And this stuff is not really seen by the public. But that's where you actually figure out what Western policy is. And then, of course, whenever whenever there's like a public speech given by Biden or, uh, you know, especially a lot of like the, the more liberal oriented people, it's all just pure marketing. Although in some ways, it's kind of refreshing to hear these insane mouth foaming neocons like Mike Pompeo, because they don't even pretend to be marketing and, and care about the pretense. They just openly say what they want. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, well, um, I do have to run. So I want to thank the people who, who ask questions. And as always, I, uh, I do two of these a week. So I will be back. Today is Tuesday. I'm going to be back either Thursday or Friday to do another one of these. And um, 
Thanks to everyone. And as always, this episode will be available on Spotify and iTunes and other places where you can find podcasts. So I'll see you all next time. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Ben.